Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome. It is Corbett. Re you are tuned into CorbettReport.com. Of course, I'm James Corbett. It is the 8th of May, 2014 here in Japan. And today we are talking on the line to Ryan R. Grant, a Latin instructor at Immaculate Conception Academy. He's also a contributing editor of the Distributist Review at the Distributist, uh, sorry, DistributistReview.com. Of course, that will be linked up in the show notes, as well as hopefully some other resources regarding today's topic of distributism. Uh, Ryan Grant, it's great to have you on the program. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, I uh, I gave the very short form bio there, but perhaps you can flesh that out for us as it's your first time on the program. Tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, and what it is you do. Okay. Um, as you said, I'm a Latin instructor. Uh, originally, I'm from Connecticut, and the um, strange course that my life has taken me has got me here in you know, focusing on economics and awake to the issues of the world. Basically, I was raised agnostic, more or less without any kind of real religion. And sometime when I was a teenager, I started getting interested in church. There's all the references to, to religion and society. I got curious about it. And so then I had a, a conversion, it was later teen, uh, to Catholicism, and which was strengthened when I was in college, at least for a while. And then actually while studying philosophy, um, you know, we had a class in Kant and early moderns, and, and so we got to got to Marx. I'll mention Marx a little later, but then I, I got to uh, Nietzsche, and I said, "Oh wow, Nietzsche is going to be fun. I'll show what an idiot he is." So I got halfway through Genealogy of Morals and found that I was an atheist, and rather shocked you know, that you know, it just seemed that everything I used to believe I just couldn't believe anymore, and and that persisted for some time. And in the midst of that, also you know, just this period of doubt, nine eleven occurred. And for me, this was something that everyone around is like, oh, how horrible, how horrible. And then as the buildings are coming down, everyone, your Patriot buttons go on for everybody. And I was just kind of looking about and saying, yeah, this just looks like we're being manipulated. You know, I don't know much about it, but, you know, they're showing the image again and again and again. It's like, you know, this just looks like media manipulation. We talked about one of our classes. The college was, that I went to was very Catholic. And so they focused on media manipulation in, in, in different elements. And, and it, this looked like a textbook example. And nobody was really willing to listen to that. So as soon as George Bush gets said, we know who did it. And I just scratched my head. So I, and there's much more to this. But, you know, I let that go for a few years and started reading Marx, which started me on, you know, economics. And the thing that struck me with Marx is that I agreed with his criticisms of capitalism, but I was absolutely horrified by his solution. You know, and with, uh, I think G.K. Chesterton has famously described socialism as uh, attempting to cure the problem of pickpocketing by removing pockets. And that's more, <laughs> that's more or less, you know, how I saw it. I said, this, this is absurd. You know, I can't follow this. And then, you know, after time, it, you know, I came back to the faith, recovered the faith again, and, um, you know, graduated, went off into the world. And then, you know, as that happened, a year after that happened, is the Iraq War. I lived in Europe for a little while. And... When the Iraq War happened, that's really when I woke up with respect to the powers that shouldn't be in the, in the, uh, in the culture of that. You know, the, the, again, it was something I was completely manipulated. And, and since I'd been at least Catholic, there was kind of a default Republican button. And little did I realize, too, that's Reagan-era programming, getting Catholics in to support whatever Republicans do, or conversely, whatever Democrats do, depending on what side of the issues you come down on, whether on life issues or on you know the issues with respect to poverty and welfare and other things, and the you know so, so now I just completely say all right that you know I am never voting Republican again. This is just a completely managed 
you know, media event to get us into war, which is when I began looking into 9-11 truth and other things. And, and, and so slowly but surely, you know, I was unemployed for a while. I would have been a teacher and then you did at a Catholic school. Those things often go and you run out of money or you offend some, somebody locally and then you get uh, put out of a job. So the, uh, you know, so I ended up in a retail outfit for a while and I was just scratching my head. It's like, life has to be about more than this. Why am I sitting here working for, I don't know, whatever it was at the time, you know, seven, eight dollars an hour when, you know, I have a bachelor's degree and I should be at least making a reasonable salary. And that's when I started, you know, revisiting back, you know, my interest in economics. And that's when I turned to distributism, which I'd heard about, never really, you know, didn't, hadn't really understood. And, you know, as no one had ever correctly predicated it for me. So then I began reading Chesterton and Belloc, and that led on to, you know, we'll talk about in a moment. And then it led me on further to really examining a theory and breaking it down and networking with other other people who are of the same mind and and trying to you know see is there any way we can address the the issues in society very interesting well just listening to that story i think we have at least a couple of points in common obviously not only our sort of political development and uh, they're coming to understand 9-11 truth and issues like that but also the fact that no one has ever actually predicated distributism for me and i imagine for much of the audience to whom this might be an entirely new term or something they may have heard in passing but probably not uh, heard about in great detail so perhaps you can tell us what is distributism sure it sounds bad because you hear distribute, and most people think, oh, redistribute. And, you know, but then again, if, if you say, I'm going to give this to you, it doesn't mean I'm going to re-give you something I already gave you. So it's a similar thing. The term distributism derives from Aristotle's concept of distributive justice. And so in case um, most may not be familiar, so Aristotle delineates several different categories of justice in ancient Greece. And so the, the course that he calls distributive deals with how society distributes its common goods, which he defines as things that fall to be divided among those who have a share in the constitution, which is the constitution of society. So when he's referring to the common goods of a state, a partnership, a corporation, in, in, in cooperative enterprises of this sort. So for Aristotle, things should be divided by merit based on contributions, but, um, but what constitutes that merit will be a matter that is determined culturally. And he says, for Democrats identify it with the status of free men, supporters of oligarchy with wealth or with noble birth, and supporters of aristocracy with excellence. So you know, to boil down what, he, what he's saying and, and how this unfolded in history, he's saying that, that there needs to be a certain level of starting justice where the goods that people need to have a common life in society are there, and that's essentially property ownership. And so in, um, I mean, there, there's various developments in between, but the fast forward sort of, um, when the early distributists, uh, G.K. Chester and Hilary Belloc, attempted you know, to look back at you know, you know, where can we find a society that's distributed, where, where there's people possess private property, and they look really to the structures of the Middle Ages, which bears some note. Hilary Belloc wrote a very long work uh, explaining um, you know, some of the problems in the modern state where it was tending to. It's called the servile state. I'm sure some of your readers are familiar with that work where he outlines kind of the, more or less a sort of history of civilization with respect to economics and economic issues and property ownership. And, you know, compares and contrasts things with slavery and command economies and, and whatnot. So what Belloc shows is that the, in the Middle Ages, you know, because you had a system where at the fall of the Roman Empire in the West, you have these massive estates of slaves. And they have no property rights, they have no freedom, they, they are owned, essentially. And the 
then what, with the fall of the empire, one of two things happen. Either the German kingdoms or the Gothic kingdoms take over, Romanized, they speak Latin, they have all the customs of that, that, that uh, culture, but you know, they're not Romans. They're essentially doing jobs that Romans were no longer able to do. Or the Roman army, which is no longer paid, would settle down somewhere and establish, and so would establish a community. So the first thing they would do is, you know, with the agents of the church, they would establish property rights. And so more or less serfdom is born. And for us, serfdom is a horror, as it should be. But for them, it was actually a step upward out of Roman slavery, out of this process. So now a serf has rights. He can inherit and will his property to his heirs. Well, it's not very much. Um, and he can, um, you know, he's got so many days off. So it's more or less a contractual arrangement. He offers labor on these common fields or some of his own produce. And in exchange, he gets security from the, you know, the former Roman army, which eventually over time becomes, you know, lords, dukes. So the very term duke actually is from the Roman dukes, which meant a general. So the, in, in this, so this, this process grew over time, changed, and then they started finding ways to get around it. Well, because, you know, if the surf just gets up and leaves, well, there, there's a, you know, those lands aren't getting worked and there's now a fall in, in the income for the Lord, who cannot then not pay his knights and so on and so forth. So what happens in the further evolution of that process is you get various laws and ways around of reforming within the tradition. So you have the year and a day law. So if you'd left, and without your lord's leave and you were in a city and practicing a trade for a year and a day, you were considered free. You were no longer under, under any kind of bondage whatsoever. You're now a freeman. And through the Black Death, which created a dearth in employment and, and a need for more workers, you eventually have you know, the, the, the old serf system as it existed maybe in the 5th or 6th and just pretty much unrecognizable until it's gone. Now you have free peasants who are laboring. And on top of that, you have guilds. You have guilds are associations of workers. So, and sometimes they're compared to unions, but it's an improper comparison. Guilds are actually, um, you know, associations of people who own their own businesses. They're, they're the masters of their trade. They're, they're recognized in the town. Oftentimes they're recognized by a royal charter or something else. And it was able to provide for, you know, the quality of goods, you know, for insurance if somebody dies. So it was essentially, it was a private organization of the people who actually do those jobs. In that group of people who actually did those jobs, say blacksmithing or carpentry or cobblers, what have you, they actually made rules and regulations which they all agreed personally to abide by in order to be in the guild. And that conferred the benefits. If you die, your spouse has an income, your, your widow would have income and your children also, and they would get apprenticed to someone to continue in the trade. And, and so the, the, you know, but the net effect of society was that you had a wide distribution of private ownership of productive property. Now today we take property ownership to mean, oh look, I bought a house and I'm, well, paying the bank for the right to own that house. It's not without reason that mortgage in French means death trap. Um, the, you know, we take you know, real estate and these things that you know, all, all you're doing is buying some cheap house that developers have made very poorly and you know, at, an absurd, at an absurd rate of absorber and interest. And then at the end of that, you own it and then try to speculate by selling it to someone else. That's what we take to be property today in the West, especially in America. Back in the middle, you know, the middle medieval period, it was all about your productive property. And the more people that own productive property, the less you see of crippling, debilitating poverty. The less you see of the, you know, where people can't feed themselves. And of course, that doesn't mean that everybody then was living in paradise. And so when early theorists of distributism are saying, well, how can we, you know, apply these principles, they're not looking back and saying, woohoo, we found our utopia. 
Instead, they're saying, well, how can we apply the principles of wide distribution of productive property to today's world? And that's where, uh, for, you know, G.K. Chesterton was born in 1874. Um, you know, it's that, that period of England, that transition from Victoria into the, the modern age. Belloc is born in 1870, a few years before. And, um, you know, so they both, you know, come into this world where, you know, everything's completely changed. We're from that older worldview, where now ownership for them is concentrated into the hands of just a few people at the top which is also going to be their critique of socialism and communism, that the, the, the ownership of productive capital is concentrated in the hands of an elite. The same thing under capitalism. It's just they call it a different name for Chesterton and Bell. They say that it's the, the wealthy class of owners that seem to have you know, all the property. And where did it go wrong? And especially for Belloc, it mostly goes wrong in the Protestant Reformation. And you know, although for him, you know, I, I take issue with Belloc there, I think it actually starts much earlier with the, uh, the spirit, you know, a certain spirit of individualism that looks beyond the common good and the idea of wide distributed property ownership. But nevertheless, so for Belloc, what happens in the social orders, you have in, in it's what restrained government was that you had competing systems of government. So there was no one person who could monopolize all the authority. And you had, uh, you know, you had the guild, as I just mentioned, which had rights, but more importantly, it also had property, which means it had wealth and it had influence and so didn't you know merchant men and, and people in other trades you know, lesser lords that that even though they had a certain degree of fealty to the king they also controlled their own army so there's no monopoly of force anywhere in the medieval state and the in the monarch also has to contend with the church which also has its property even at certain periods which is so good you know they had their own their own militias and their own military towns and town burghers had their own militias so there's no, you know so there's so many competing interests that you know Richard II of England tried to uh, raise a poll tax, which is really just so he could eat better. Um, the you know there was a peasant rebellion which immediately you know conquered London, and he had to give in to all their demands. And you know he realized, okay, there's limits. Same thing for King John and Magna Carta. You know his, his earls had revolted, and the Bishop of Canterbury, Stephen Langton, wrote up Magna Carta, so that, you know to clearly delineate the king shall not rule other than he's always ruled. Because in the Middle Ages, tax cuts are permanent, tax increases are temporary. Because when you get a tax increase voted in. It, it has to expire after so many years because the king was expected to run the whole country on his own income. You know, it'd be nice to see Obama taking it, you know, paying for his own vacations or something like that. And, you know, but that's that's the way it worked back then. So the you know, so with the wide distribution of property, you know, where it ends in the middle in the Reformation is that you have a tend a trend towards centralization, and it affects everybody. It's not just you know, I'm not trying to attack Protestants. You know, so if you have Protestant listeners, they don't start writing you emails. Hey, I don't like what he said. Um, you know, everybody, even the Catholics, got in on it too. So you have in the first, the first instance, of course, is I mean, you have Luther and, and the things that went on there, but mostly it was with Henry VIII, and that's where the modern world has its first, you know, kick in the womb, so to speak, where the modern Leviathan that we call government today, and that's when, and what everyone understands, Henry VIII broke from Rome over a divorce, but most people don't understand how that materialized. It was by the act of royal supremacy of 1533, where Henry is not only supreme in the church, but he's also supreme in the state, even above parliament. And you know, so then he confiscates all the church monastic property and you know, takes it to the state. And then, of course, he gives it to his favorites, which will come back and bite his heirs later when they're wealthier than the king, uh, which sets the stage partially for the English Civil War. And so this sets up regalism. So where the monarchies, which were limited by tradition, limited by competing systems of government now seek to make an absolute centralization. So it happens in France, 
under Francois I, the happiness in the Holy Roman Empire where there were many limits on what the actual emperor could do. And Charles V was trying as hard as he could to, to follow the examples of you know, Protestant electorates in his own empire in, in Henry VIII and centralized authority under himself, which he was never able to do. And, and so on and so forth until you proceed to the 17th century and you have the English Civil War which is the most important event in modern political history and, so, and, you, and you see really there the break with the old medieval world and the modern world where we come into the capitalist world because as well as the, the modern political theory because you have you know parliament which is at odds over you know, the king's control of the army and taxes there's a number of political issues there's a specter of Catholic conspiracy to, to kill all the Protestants and you know everyone's looking for Jesuits under their bed and in this fear that somehow there's going to you know this, this revolution and everyone's whipped up into a frenzy and then the Irish revolt happens so then finally Parliament and Charles part ways and they go to war. Well the outcome, Parliament wants to establish a Presbyterian Empire more or less and, and uh, get the rights of Parliament and then you, know, you have Cromwell come around and this is the face of modern revolution. Cromwell comes up through the ranks and he, you know, he gets respect, but he has command of the army. And since the army is loyal to him alone, he goes and dissolves the parliament and more or less rules of the force of a gun for the rest of his existence in England until 1558. So the, you know, and, and then of course that tension never dies, even though they try as hard as they can when Charles II starts to reset it back to 1641, but it doesn't work. So you get this, these simmering conflicts between king and parliament. Charles II is always poor. Whereas you look over across at the Dutch Republic. Now the Dutch Republic was, you know, it, it declared itself independent from Spain. They'd fought wars, 80 years war, and then another war, you know, totally devastated the country, but they recovered. And they seemed to be prospering. And the English, even though they're fighting the Dutch at different ways, you're looking at the Dutch in admiration. It's like, wow, this tiny little principality, and they're putting out more ships than we are. Because they had discovered fractional reserve lending. And they had discovered the, the engine that greases modern capitalism. So when you already have the individualistic spirit in place, where you know, your own personal profits outweigh any consideration of the common good around it, that's what generally distributed is discerned as the just capitalist spirit. So it's not, you know, so distributed doesn't want to get rid of the profit mode, because that would be absurd. Nobody would work. We want to, you know, but you also have to check it, just as you check the power of kings, with, you know, uh, you know basically natural law. The, the sense of the community, sense of the common good around you, that there's certain things you, you, you know, you shouldn't or couldn't do, especially if that dangers somebody else's livelihood. So, you know, so with the Dutch, and then of course with the, the so-called Glorious Revolution, William of Orange comes into England, deposes James II, who wasn't the brightest bulb <laughs> that ever sat on the throne, then um, that in the, inaugurates fractional reserve lending and the creation of the Bank of England. And it establishes that stranglehold of finance capital, which then, you know, proceeds to finance and centralize all the wealth. And so Sabellic so doesn't go into all these issues in the servile state. He'll touch on some more of them in other works of his. Another excellent work of Belloc's is an essay on the restoration of property, where he looks at solutions. Well, how can we solve the problem we have today? And the, um, and so the original distributist that's largely G.K. Chesterton is one of the foremost people who's very well respected in, um, in literary circles, even by his enemies. Um, he was very well, you know, loved by, you know, by everyone. He had a long-running debate with George Bernard Shaw and many issues. They're very much not, you know, on opposite sides of thought. Um, you know, so Cecil Chesterton, his brother, um, 
Vincent McNabb, who was a Dominican priest who uh, slept on boards on the floor and he used to distribute any, any, any money he solicited from wealthy people. He used to just go to Hyde Park and distribute it to all the poor there. He was very much in, uh, you know, proponent of uh, distributism. And, it, and even though it arises largely from Catholic social teaching in many ways in the Aristotelian tradition, it, the original movement included a number of non-Catholics, Arthur Penty, uh, Hilary Pepler, uh, Dorothy Sayers, and you know the handful of others that that were of a of a very different mind from you know from Chester and Bellock I mean on religious issues, and so so the idea is you want as much productive property in society as possible, and so it's called the third way between capitalism, which tends toward the concentration of capital in in the hands of a few, and then communism, which does the same thing under the guise of giving it for everybody by, you know, locking it up amongst party elites and various things of this nature. Well, that was certainly a mouthful. I can tell you are an instructor. <laughs> <laughs> All right. There's so much to parse from that, but I appreciate that you began that by by pointing out that a lot of people will Im immediately have problems just from the term itself because of the connotations with redistribution. And of course, when you talk about distributive justice and uh, the problems of individualism and uh, the return to feudalism and serfdom, or at least uh, some, some looking at that for a model, I think you're going to have a uh, problem selling it to the public because of all, well, of, the, all of the well, we're not looking. Well, also, we're not looking for you know nobody's looking for to return to serfdom or or feudalism per se. It's rather to put them in the correct context and what right. they'd actually done. Right. So obviously, you know, I don't want to be serf. You don't want to be serf. Exactly. No, I. But we do want. But... I do want property I can heir to my heirs without paying the bank seven times what it's worth with Fed fiat money and other such things. Well, agreed. Uh, certainly, I agree on that point. Well, let's okay. Let's get into some of the issues that you raised there. I mean, one of them uh, um, that you mentioned there in passing at the end is one that's important to me. I I am not a Catholic. I'm not planning to adopt the faith at any point in the near future. Does that mean that I am precluded from this? And if not, um, what is my relationship to this predominantly Catholic teaching? Um, you're not precluded at all. Because it's, see, in um, the Catholic Church holds, um, it just in the theology of the papacy, this is something a lot of people would get confused off, and it is no surprise, because uh, it can be difficult without a certain degree of training that you know that the Pope, as Vatican I teaches, is infallible in issues of faith and morals. So that that functionally means is throughout the tradition how that's understood is that when the Pope teaches the whole Church as universal shepherd, that on issues concerning the you know what has to be believed by Catholics and morals, he's infallible, and so that directs the Church in a certain direction, and likewise in morals. And the uh, but the problem is that you know, so what he does with respect to so you see a couple of popes that address this issue directly. One is of course Pope Leo the Thirteenth in his encyclical Rerum Novarum, which is on on capital labor. It's it's free on the internet. If you just type in Rerum R E R U M Novarum N O V A R U M, uh, which literally on itself means of revolutions, but it's it's an encyclical on capital and labor, and he lays out the Church's position on what should be moral in the market, and it's only in the form of principles. It's not in the form of, all right, you will all do this, or face the eternal fires of hell, etc. And following up 40 years afterward, uh, Pope Pius XI also put out an encyclical by the name, of course, 40 years later, Quadragesimo Anno, where he, again, you know, appraises Leo XIII's the, Leo the teaching and says, and, and everything he said was going to happen has happened, and he talks about the you know, the dangers of communism that be also of the dictatorship of the market. And he's writing this in, you know, in the late 20s. 
right in the midst of the Depression. And most of his points were exactly right and came true also. So what do we take from that? Well, he, they lay out principles that in the moral sphere that should be followed by anyone, but the actual setting up of a system you could call it a Catholic system of economics. You could call it from Catholic social teaching. But a Muslim could do it. A Protestant could do it. It doesn't matter. Anybody could do this. And you can thumb your nose at the Pope all day if it makes you feel better. And it really doesn't matter, neither to me nor to anyone else, as long as at the end of the day, at least on that level anyway, um, that we're working for the same end, which is you know the widely distributed ownership of private property by the masses, and not everyone alone in the same measure. Some people have more and some people have less. So we could set up a system that is, you know, you know, through associations of workers, through guilds. And, you know, in the Middle Ages, those were Catholic institutions. But today, you know, they don't have to be. So we look for a model, but then we can apply it to the needs of society. And most societies are pluralist. Now, I mean, obviously, so the United States, but also Europe. I used to live in Italy. Um, you know, there, there's a, amongst, I mean, granted, most um, Italians are Catholic, but most of them are also not really practicing Catholics. And you have the most people who are practicing are actually Muslims or, or evangelical Protestants. So, you know, you have, you know, a great, you know, you know, ground, common ground to say, hey, we want to resist the powers that be. Let's work on how, you know, we can acquire productive pro property. How can we have alternative currencies? How can we have all the things that will facilitate our economic activity without the system? Well, I think people who listen to to my work will probably know by now that I am broadly in line with, I think, what the ends of distributism would be. I do advocate for, for local economies in which uh, local production is possible and, and people trade through alternative currencies and the like. I think I'm on board with all of that. But of course, as always, the devil is in the details and the means do not justify the ends. So it does depend very much on how we get from here to there. Let's talk about the, the issue of the monetary system, which I think you've alluded to here. And, and you've talked about the idea that in uh, the distributist system, usurious banking would not be possible. Fractional reserve banking would not be allowed. But if so, then does that put any um, sort of form on what the actual monetary system would look like in distributism? Or would it allow for, for many different forms of, of currency? It's pretty much open. And if we look at uh, you know, the principles in, in you know, medieval Europe, again, looking at a model, and typically it was a gold standard currency, and then silver secondarily, or anything else of value that could be traded. And in uh, one French village, the, as uh, Paul Grignon actually uh, brings this out um, in his money, his solutions for his money as debt series, is, is, I think it's his What is Money movie, um, where, he, where he just gives out this, you know, this, and, and this actually did happen in a village in France where the people didn't have enough silver, so they just started, you know, trading a word of mouth or certificate. X amount is good at, at the bakers, and that, that traded as good as currency. And the, it's not, you know, granted it wouldn't do you much if you went outside of that city, if you're going to head off to Constantinople, you know, credit from, the, you know, uh, Antoine's bakery somewhere wouldn't do anything for you. But nevertheless, there's, you know, there's no limit to, okay, we can only do this or we could only do this. You know, we could only have, um, uh, you know, as, you know, a money system that's being put out by the sovereign or by the town or by businesses, or we could only have gold or we could, you know, any, you could do anything you want, provided that it had value. Because everything in distributism tends toward value. The products you produce have value. The you know we're not trying to produce the lowest, cheapest thing. You know, which I I, I liken unto 
um, you know, when governments are devaluing the currency, and you've talked at length of this in your past podcast, so you know, all the governments are in a race to devalue the currency to raise the value of their exports. Well, in, um, in the industrial period, especially the, you know, the present day, with planned obsolescence, all the businesses are out to devalue the quality of their products in order to maximize their sales. The, um, and so, you know, the, and part of the goal with you know, voluntary associations of tradesmen is that you're going to guarantee you know, good prices. But the other problem has to be also with what people are willing to do. And, and that's one of the other major problems. So, because you have to convert people, Hillary Belloc himself said, you know, if you don't get people to want property and want value, then it's never going to happen. Because it's simply, you know, even if, even if one would want such a thing, it could not be produced by a government fiat from above. I mean, not just because government mismanage it, but then, you know, again, <laughs> it, it, as, as we've seen with, uh, you know, all the modern governments, the Leviathan of Hobbes and Locke, it's always going to twist things to the evil ends. Well, uh, again, when we talk about distribu- distribution and distributive justice, again, it does carry so many connotations that, that make people's right. flags go up. But I don't think anyone disagrees with the idea that the fact that the world's 85 richest people have the same amount of wealth as the bottom 50% of people on the planet, that's three and a half billion people, is uh, just a completely ridiculous and untenable uh, state of affairs. And I think the only people who would disagree with that is either those 85 people or people who have deluded themselves into thinking that this current system is going to allow them to become one of those 85 people. And uh, so I I think everyone understands there is a a massive problem with the system as it's developed. Of course, this does raise the question of how we go from a system in which 85 people have the same amount of wealth as the bottom 50% of people on the planet to a more distributed uh, form of of economic organization. And that brings up the question of of expropriation of property. How right. does distribution uh, distributism imagine that this will actually take place? Well, actually, there's a good example in Taiwan, come to think of it. In Taiwan, after the, the nationalists failed in, um, in, a, you know, in, the, in the war with the Chinese, with, with Mao Zedong, they went to Taiwan mostly, a lot of their, their former you know, elites. And so they, uh, I forget exactly the way this process worked, but they conv- it was a feudal economy in Taiwan, and you had nobility that, you know, that had serfs, and you know, in a similar thing, you know, to the, to the early Middle Ages. So the 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 nationalists, um, you know, began printing a currency that was based on land. And they what they did is they um, set up a government which the lords agreed to. And I forget again exactly how this process took place. And the so the lords agreed to a buyout because if you ever start with expropriation of wealth you're always going to start with injustice. And if you start with injustice, well, that's usually where you're also going to end as well. And so the idea, okay, we're going to take your wealth away so we can, you know, ensconce the, the rest of the people. Well, I mean, it's a noble I, a desire to, to ensconce the, the 99%, but you're also setting a precedent that when it serves some perceived purpose of the people, we can take away theirs too. Or even if it happens as a community action, we're going to take the property. So anyway, so again, in Taiwan, so they offered a buyout. The, the serfs were, were given land lease programs to buy out, um, you know, programs, you know, they were given incentives by the government to sell the, you know, sell the crops, even find markets abroad. They bought out their sections of land from the local lords until eventually the local lords were so no longer. 
So now you have a situation where the people have acquired the property, they've bought it, you know, they've not, it's not been stolen, it hasn't been taken, and now the, the former lords now have money. So the, the government wisely brought in experts from America, from Germany, and from Japan, and they worked on establishing industry. So now this class of lords with money to invest has a place to invest it. And they did so largely in an ownership fashion. It was, and not every single thing is exactly what I'd call distributed is, but it was right along that same philosophy. And so what they achieved in Taiwan is even today in Taiwan, there's still a very low level of unemployment, can, even in real numbers compared to in many other places in the world. The, you know, and so that's one, one way in which that could work. Another way which Bellock suggested, and I'm still on the fence of whether I particularly like this idea or not, I suppose you could apply it to local governments, but he had the idea that if you put a tax on, on large businesses over a certain level, in that you know extremely high tax, and a zero tax on any business below it, then it would be obvious that all the investment would be driven to the lower, you know, to all those businesses in that lower bracket that have zero tax because they'll have more returns, and then you know the larger businesses won't, and that'll encourage smaller cooperative businesses. The other thing is the principle of subsidiarity. The smallest possible unit, you know, performs an action, but that doesn't mean that every business has to be some guy operating out of his garage, because that would be absurd, especially in the context of modern technology, where if you're going to make it, you know, computer chips, for example, uh, you can't make that in your garage because there's very expensive machines with parts that are practically microscopic that are, are laying up transistor chips, and there's 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 no way that you could produce that on your own in in your you know your garage. But, but on the other hand, what about a co-owned factory where you all have an ownership share? And, you know, if you're part of a guild of technology that's helped finance the acquiring of, of new machinery that allows you to do this. And then not to mention, you also have, you know, technology that might help enable this with 3D printing, now, you know, which is, is, you know, gradually growing and hopefully government doesn't manage to sequester that one off to the elite and centralize that as well. Because that's something that can completely decentralize the, the workings of business. And... The, um, and so there's, there's a number of models to make things local. But I think the most important thing is if you have local communities where you've convinced people in the community to start functioning you know, locally, think locally, part of that is don't feed the beasts. Don't, you know, there's a reason why it says don't feed the bear because it's going to keep eating. Don't go to Walmart. And somebody says, oh, well, it's so much cheaper. In my experience, it's not exactly always true. But nevertheless, when you go to Walmart, you are feeding the beast. You are giving their economic forecasters the evidence that there's demand for these products, and therefore they will continue to look for East Beijing sweatshop labor products, which are cheap and break in, you know, the, in this planned obsolescence garbage that we're all buying. Instead, invest in people who own their own businesses by buying their products and not going to Walmart. And you know, make certain commitments, even on, on things that seem silly, like beer. I mean, there's three breweries in this town, and I made the decision I'm not going to buy any beer unless it comes from these three breweries. And you know, and it's just one small way to divert money that's going elsewhere to your small local business. But the problem is, it has to start also with the individual, as well as with people who have philosophically high-minded ideas. Because there, there's a great cartoon that showed up on the internet at some point. It depicts two roads going in different directions. One has a sign, which has three titles on it. It says, Truth, Justice, Wisdom. And the sign pointing in the other direction says, 99-cent hamburgers. And there's not a single person on the former road, but the, the line is uncountable for the 99-cent hamburgers. And that's that. It's a snapshot of American society. 
not just American, unfortunately, but uh, no, yeah, point taken. Well, uh, that brings up, again, some very interesting points, and I'm glad that you did raise the specter of 3D printing, because this is something that, that is um, very interesting to me. Obviously, I've done some work on that that phenomenon, and that, to me, strikes at the heart of this issue, because I, I don't know if I'm the only one, but when I look at these economic theories that have these high-minded ideas about the, uh, the distribution of the means of production, I can't help but think of that as a hopelessly quaint 19th century sort of conception of the economy, because I don't, I mean, again, I I do realize there are workers who work in factories that could not own their own uh, means of production. But for myself, that has never affected me in, in my entire career. First as a teacher, now as someone working on the internet, I, yeah, I own my own computer and my internet connection. So I guess I own my means of production. It um, Well, in a certain sense, you're working a service job. So am I. And, you know, we're, we're not, I mean, we're producing services. Right, right, right. And that's where I'm coming to. Right. So because uh, there is the, still the productive economy, which today does involve that model of buying, you know, i-slave devices that are manufactured by Chinese slaves from um, materials sourced from conflict mines in the Congo and things like this, which obviously is not the ideal uh, system. But of course, then again, you raise the idea of the technological development of 3D printing and other revolutionary technologies that could bring this literally down to the local level in a very, very real fashion in, uh, I think, a lot faster than a lot of people would suspect, given the acceleration of the rate of change of technology. So is distributism, in a way, sort of just natural, inevitable? I mean, is this a process that has been going on and will continue going on indefinitely, and we don't even have to necessarily um, hypothesize about it? It will simply happen? I don't believe anything simply will happen. Um, you know, events and causes and, and individuals have to lead the idea, you know, lead the way with ideas and, and perform things. And I mean, back, I mean, according to, you know, Ricardo, capitalism was inevitable. But yet, when you look at the history, there's actually various steps that had to be taken for that to even come about. And so, the, and the same thing is going to be true for distributism. That you know, I think the path forward that inevitably, you know, should be distributist in order to, you know, to really realize what we could do to build our, our, our civilization, to build our, our, you know, to build our people to, to where they, they own, you know, the, by and large, I mean, they're still going to be rich and poor. That's obvious. But you'll have, you know, people who own property, so you don't need government welfare. You don't need the state leviathan to come in and say, oh, we'll take care of you. And, you know, nothing just happens. I mean, Chesterton, I think, said, if that's the you know, I don't say distributism will happen, but I do say it should happen. And, you know, and I think that we should be weary of anyone who says that this is going to happen. So, but nevertheless, I, you're right with the direction of technology and events that I think it, it's going to be a clear picture, and especially once, because in America the situation is precarious, and I'm sure, I know in, in Italy there's a lot of places where it's extremely precarious, that, um, you know, where if the trucks stop rolling, well, you don't have any food. And a lot of people wake up to that reality the hard way and not be prepared. Unfortunately, very sad, tragically, a lot of people are going to die when that happens. And, you know, the only thing left will be either, you know, being slaves in the plantation, whatever government survives if, if we're at the level where the trucks aren't rolling, or, you know, people are going to have to band together and work, you know, productively in cooperation, but, you know, for, you know, unproductive property because, you know, we're not going to, you know, uh, you know, end up creating any kind of communist society or anything where everyone's just going to share in common because human, human nature still stands. People will look for their own, you know, interest you know, and they're not going to just, you know, some people will, but not, not everybody's going to do it. And, 
you know, the, the world where it's going, you know, I mean, who, I mean, the touch of a button could end the world. So, you know, we have no idea really what's going to happen. But what I do know is the current system is, is unsustainable. And I think there's another thing in the matrix here for why that is. Um, why is it all this wealth is in, you know, 85% of the world's wealth is in 1% of the world's hands? It's largely because I think, um, and maybe in the end we actually agree the same thing, you'll just take issue with the language, but I don't believe there's such a thing as a free market. And a lot of distributors would, would dispute that, principally because the market is a power structure, just as much as government, just as much as anything else. And in that power structure, well, whoever has the gold makes the rules. So whoever has the most wealth also has the most power within the market and the ability to shut people out. And the only way to equalize that situation is by you know, in increasing the amount of wealth that the average people have in the market, which can really only come from increasing their, their land ownership and the production of real things, which come from forests, fields, mines, and fisheries. You know, it's not going to come from a government program. It's not going to come from um, you know, the, the benign philanthropy or anything of this nature. Well, again, there's so many issues in there that we could parse out, but I think we're drawing this conclusion to a close. But before we do so, I, I just want to pick up again on, on another aspect of what you were talking about there. You were talking about uh, something that, again, I've been in line with and have uh, promoted as a solution for a very long time, which is the idea of withholding our 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 useless paper dollars and what have you from the corporations that we don't want to support and, and giving them to the local businesses or the independent people that we do want to support as a means of affecting that redistribution that needs to take place. And I, I agree. I think that should be it. That, at least to my mind, sounds like this uh, economic system is compatible with my own philosophy of voluntarism. Is there a fundamental compatibility there? Is there an incompatibility? Um, what What's your take on voluntarism as a principle? I've been listening as, with uh, interest as you've been unfolding that gradually over the last year or so, and, or more. Um, and you know, it's hard to say because I think there's issues of, you know, again, terms and terminology and other things. So I think the biggest question being what is government? Um, you know, with the, with the Wilcox debate with Stefan Molineo, I was just cringing, but every Wilcox would talk because he would just completely avoid Stefan's question. I think there's also, there's a philosophical difference, at least for myself, and I know other distributors that I know, in as much as we come from a Catholic perspective, we come from the Aristotelian, not just Aristotle, Plato as well, you know, the, the Greco medieval philosophy tradition. And in government, you know, is factors very strong. You also have in the Bible and in Romans 12, where it says all governments from God, etc. And so there's this question of, well, can we get rid of government? And I think I can. Um, I always sign my emails to your only monarchist listener. And I always say that with a certain bit of amusement. You know, I'm not a, a monarchist in the sense of supporting the regalism of the 16th century upward. I'm more of an anarcho-monarchist, along the lines of Tolkien, actually. And, or actually, who's they use that term? Salvador Dali used that term, and not anarcho-monarchist. People just look at him because it's so counterintuitive. It sounds absurd. And, and, and I think there, though, there's a compatibility between the traditional upholding of a certain right of government, which was always said when government actually ran its own business on its own purse and not by taxing people, uh, that it was a man. The whole idea of calling government as if it's some entity is absurd. As, as Tolkien said, it's an abstract noun. It would do the world a whole lot better to say His Majesty's Council Winston and his gang of thieves than to say His, you know, his Majesty's government. And the, you know, so, so what do you do to reconcile this tradition that seems pro-government with the theory that says government has absolutely no right to exist? And I would argue, well, wait a minute, what is government? 
because if people are forming voluntary associations and enforcing them by contract that has a financial mechanism that really triggers the, the negative effects, frankly, you could call that government in a certain sense, just not in the sense we need today. Um, in as much as people are, you know, because all that is an abstract noun, all it means is the act of ruling. And therein, you are affecting an order. So it's not like when you, you, know, you hear anarchy and you think of, you know, the tires burning and, and you know, people in rags running around shooting each other in the city with no government and cops. Well, you know, and then that's not at all what you're proposing. And it sounds like it is reconcilable with the Catholic tradition in that view that, well, you are establishing a government, just, you know, and you can establish justice, which is, for me, that's the prime thing. It's not a question of, you know, what, what kind of limits in a government there are in a state. Because, I mean, the American government, you know, Jefferson, the apostle of liberty, is really, for me, he's the apostle of tyranny. There's uh, Jefferson just um, in his second term, you know, created so many aberrations, even against things he had said in the past, that I have a, you know, I have a hard time seeing how Jefferson could be branded as this apostle of liberty. And, you know, so getting away from all those types of things in, in the, you know, the state, it is you know ultimately a good, and I think it can be accomplished and, and reconciled. It what, what appears a variance in the traditions, you know. And maybe there's another thought: monarchy as a, a central principle of unity that's itself checked by all these associations, and even financially checked by insurance companies that won't. And, and here I mean, you know, basically somebody who runs a state on his own purse, who doesn't subsist on taxes. And other government is the local governments of town councils and businessmen and tradesmen. You know, which is not, you know, government as we understand it today. Very interesting. Well, I guess it just, uh, I mean, there's so much that we, we could and should probably expound upon w with regards to that. But uh, I, I personally see some sort, form of compatibility because I think of voluntarism not as a political prescriptive program so much as just an ethical principle. So I, I do believe that any form of governmental institution could be erected on the ed edifice of voluntarism, just so long as participation in that was uh, obviously voluntary. Voluntary. Um, yes. Well, okay. Uh, again, there's so much to talk about with regards to this. And I... Uh, uh, must admit, I, I mean, I am only uh, coming to the, uh, the idea of distributism recently. I, I haven't really researched it in any degree of detail, so I'm still reserving judgment on a number of, uh, of uh, aspects of this, and we'll have to do more research. But as Aristotle himself said, it's the mark of an educated mind to be able to entertain a thought without accepting it. So let's entertain Precisely. some of these thoughts and take a look at uh, at some of this uh, these ideas. And in order to do so, are there any sources that you'd like to recommend, obviously, other than the distributive review, which again will be linked in the show notes, but are there any other sources you'd like to recommend for people to, who are interested in, in researching this? Well, uh, you can look at the American Chesterton Society, and it's not exclusively a distributist um, you know, association, but it's, it's devoted to the thought of G.K. Chesterton, who's one of the, really the prime exponent for it in the, in the early 20th century. Um, there's some books that can be you know, purchased as well. I hate to do that because it's easier to, to, to recommend online. But I would recommend The Vocation of Business by John Medai. It's M-E-D-A-I-L-L-E. And he spends a lengthy time. In fact, that's where I got that example about Taiwan from. And um, you know, there's another book by him, Towards a Truly Free Market. So I would recommend those. And there's an innumerable websites if you just hit distributism in uh, start page you'll, you know, it'll invariably come up. Extra points for mentioning Startpage. All right. All right. Well, Ryan Grant, <laughs> it's great to have you on the program. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you very much for sharing your knowledge of distributism with us. I did as well. Thank you, James. <laughs>